Here we go. You're listening to Law and Gospel on this Monday, September the 21st in the year of our Lord 2020. And we will be taking a look at a lesson for the upcoming Sunday, the 17th Sunday after Pentecost, which will be occurring on September the 27th in the year 2020. I'm Pastor Tom Baker. And for this next Sunday, there are three readings, one from Ezekiel 18, another from Philippians 2, and the third from Matthew 21. I'm going to be talking about Philippians chapter 2. Now, I got a little surprised when I took a look at the readings I don't always know why they choose specific readings for a specific Sunday. But the Philippians 2 passage is divided into two parts, verses 1 to 4 and then verses 14 to 18. And what I noticed immediately is what I consider to be the most important part of Philippians chapter 2 isn't part of the reading and that's verses 5 to 11. So I I don't really understand how you can do Philippians 2, 1 to 4, and 14 to 18 without looking or at least mentioning in a sermon or a Bible study Philippians 2, 5 to 11, which we're going to be doing. So without further ado, let's begin with Philippians 2, 1 to 4. Paul's writing to the church at Philippi, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Boy, if that isn't the essence of what a Christian congregation or uh, the Christian religion should be about, I don't know what else is. Because we get encouragement in Christ. How do we get encouraged by Christ? No matter what is happening to us, there is a promise. I've said this a number of times, You can go to any bookstore, including Concordia Publishing House, and buy a book that has as its title, Promises from the Bible. And it really doesn't matter what bookstore you get it from because most of them only have promises from the Bible. And a number of them categorize them. For example, here are promises for those of you who have lost a loved one. Here are promises for those of you who have lost your job. Here are promises for those of you who did not get that raise that you thought you were going to get, etc., etc., etc. So that's really good to have such promises because it is through them that we find encouragement. And we also find comfort from love. Not only the love we get from others, but specifically the love from Christ. There there is no better love that anybody gives us than that love from Christ. And, And why is that so? Because the love for Christ is a love 
that we do not deserve. And it is a love that is totally unselfish. Any participation in the spirit. What does that mean? Well, once you've been baptized and have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit oftentimes will comfort you by reminding you of Bible verses that are appropriate for the situation. And that's where you get that participation in the Spirit by going back to the Word of God. Any affection and sympathy. Uh, affection would be a word that's talking about how people regard you highly because you are good friends to them. And sympathy, every now and then, we do need some sympathy from others when we're going through a difficult time. And that occurs because of a good relationship we have with others in the church. Now, the Apostle Paul says, how does all this happen? by having the same mind. Now, what he's referring there to is the same understanding of God's word. Therefore, there's not arguments in the church about whether or not Christ died for our sins. No, it's clear from the scripture he did. There ought not be arguments in the church that, well, how much do we have to do to be saved? We don't have to do anything because it's a free gift. We're saved by grace, etc. And he continues that saying, being in full accord and of one mind. This is why in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, we have what's called the Book of Concord, which is an accurate summary of the teachings of the Bible. In fact, yesterday in catechetical class that I did, we're going through Luther's small catechism, and we were going through the Lord's Prayer. And I was making a point that when you pray the Lord's Prayer, you are not praying to get something, because every petition, which means a request of the Lord's Prayer, you already have. Our Father, who art in heaven, you already have God as your father. And that shows what kind of God you have. Uh, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. These are all wonderful gifts you already have. God's name is already holy in itself. And, and we're praying that we might use it in a holy way. The other thing I like pointing out with the Lord's Prayer, the connections the Lord's Prayer has with the commandments. The first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Well, that's our Father who art in heaven. The second commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Well, we pray, hallowed be thy name. His name is already holy in itself, but we're asking God that we use it in a holy and in a proper way. And then the third commandment is also similar to the next petition, thy kingdom come. How does God's kingdom come? Well, the third commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What does Luther say about that? We should fear and love God that we 
do not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear it. That's how God comes to us. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they lost God because he threw them out of the garden. They lost a way of talking to God, and they lost a way of hearing from God. Well, the Lord's Prayer brings all three back. Our Father, God's back. And that his name be kept holy. He gives us his name so we can call upon him. We don't say, hey, you up there. No, we can say Father or Jesus or Redeemer or the many names that he gives us. And of course, he talks to us in worship. So this is how we are in one accord because we're agreeing with what the Bible has to say. Paul goes on in verse three, Philippians two, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Wow. In fact, when it skips down to verse 14, it says, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Do you know that we grumble against God? In fact, that's the definition of sin. What's at the center of sin? I. And what does I mean? That I become more important than God. In fact, yesterday's gospel was really interesting. Uh, it, it talks about, of course, the whole concept of this parable where a man owes a, a, a lot of uh, people work so they can work in his vineyard. And he hires people at, say, six in the morning, then at 11, at one, at three, and at five. And at the end, he gives them all the same pay. Well, the people who were hired first, though they agreed for a day's wages, a denarius, they expected to get more than the person who had only worked for one hour, but they got the same. And it says they grumbled against the master. Wow. Grumbling against God. That's the definition of sin. Every time you sin, you're grumbling against God. Uh, we made note of that with Adam. When he fell into sin, God was talking to him. And who did Adam blame for falling into sin? A lot of people think he blamed Eve. But here are his words. The woman you gave to me, she gave me of the fruit and I did eat. Adam is really blaming God. And every time we don't have proper repentance, we are therefore blaming God for our sin. Why'd you put me in this situation? In fact, a lot of people are living immoral lives and they're blaming God for it because I was born this way. How can you blame me? Well, this is ridiculous. You are born with original sin, but it's clear from the Bible that original sin is an error, is false teaching. It's an abomination before Almighty God. And so people still will go ahead 
and do that original sin. Uh, whether they are women and think they can be pastors, that's part of original sin. From God's point of view, they really are not pastors because it's clear from the scripture only males are permitted to be pastors, just like only females are permitted to have babies. So it's, it's really interesting that a lot of times we look out for our own interests, thinking that we're more significant than others. It's at this point that the reading goes from verse four, look each of you, uh, let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, to verse 14. And it's at this point in the sermon, I would bring in verses five to 11, because this is the connection to Jesus Christ. Verse five, Philippians two, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, Jesus was human. He became incarnate, but he also was divine. Is Paul saying that we ought to have a divine nature within us? No. He's talking about the mind of our attitude toward others that it ought to be like Christ's attitude toward us. And he explains it in verse six, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. You see, that's how superior Jesus was to any other human being on earth. And so therefore, when Thomas said, first time a disciple referred to him as God, my God and my Lord, Jesus didn't reprimand him because he was not robbing from God, Jesus, because he is God. Therefore, that's how superior he was to us. But then listen to verse seven, and this is the attitude we should follow. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. You see, Jesus was God, but when he walked around, he did not have a halo on the top of his head, like a lot of artistic renderings of Jesus. I've even seen nativity scenes where Jesus is lying uh, in the manger with a halo above his head. No, that, that wasn't seen. Nobody looking at Jesus would have jumped to the conclusion, he is God. They came to the conclusion that he is God for two reasons. Uh, number one, his word. He spoke words of God. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, those words therefore moved people to believe in him. Even when they saw great miracles, like the feeding of the 5,000, or Jesus standing up in the boat and calming the wind and the wave, that still didn't lead people to believe he was God because they needed to have faith and therefore they had stubborn hearts. Remember the disciples said, who is this person 
that even wind and wave obey him. And the feeding of the 5,000, many jumped to the conclusion that he was the new bread king, taking over a kingship, giving everybody what they wanted, getting rid of the Romans, restoring Israel to its former grandeur. No, that's not a proper understanding of Jesus' words or his miracles. So you came to believe he was God by hearing the word and the word creating faith within you by the power of the Holy Spirit. So how did he make himself of no reputation? First of all, he became human. Second of all, verse eight, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Remember, Peter, he was ready to take out his sword and he cut off the servant of the high priest Malchus's ear. And Jesus told him, no, no, don't use your sword. If I wanted, I could have a legion of angels come down and they would protect me from these guards. But he obediently went with them in order to be crucified. And that crucifixion was a tremendous act of humility. This was God being crucified, becoming obedient to whom? Obedient to the Father, to the point of death. And verse 8 explains what that death was, even the death of the cross. Then verse 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even the unbelievers will confess that, but they will not trust him. And those in hell will recognize that he is indeed the Lord, and it'll just make them more angry. Uh, for example, there may be somebody who's working with you at your office, and they get a raise before you do. Now, that doesn't make you look up to them. You recognize that they are of a ha higher status than you are with their higher raise and their promotion, but it makes you more angry at them. And that's because you aren't good friends with them. That's because unbelievers will always be angry at God, even when they recognize him as the Lord. So at this point, that's not part of the reading, but I would sure bring it in in the sermon. And the reading continues with verse 14. Do all things or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among who shame as in the world? See, this is very important that the church is kind of like a light on the top of a hill. And people can use that light 
as I drive many, many miles every week to go to the four congregations I'm serving in Illinois, I often will go to intersections on the highway and way up in the air, they have lights. And those brilliant lights illuminate the road beneath so that accidents rarely happen at these intersections because you can see people walking, people on, or other cars coming, etc. So, so it is really important. And that's what the church is. And what is that light? Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now that day of Christ is of course, judgment day. And on that particular day, we're gonna be like the sheep in Matthew 25. God is gonna commend us for our many good works. And we're gonna say, when did I do these things? I don't remember that kind of a life. And he's going to say, whatever you did to the least of these, my brethren, you were doing unto me. So a lot of time we Christians spontaneously act as a light in the world. Well, we do that when, for example, a friend of ours dies and we go to the funeral home to express our condolences. That is the light of Christ coming through as we share the comfort that we have about the loved one who is in heaven. Verse 17, even, and Paul's talking here, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad to rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Reading was very, where Paul was saying that yes, he's in prison, but because of his imprisonment, the whole imperial guard, and that'd be the Roman soldiers who were watching him, knew he was in prison because of his relationship to Jesus Christ. And he also makes another point that sounds a little confusing. Because of his imprisonment, those Christians outside the prison were then bold to speak about Jesus Christ to others, even though they too could have been put in prison. And I was trying to figure out how is Paul's imprisonment, how does that lead others to become bold? Aren't they afraid of going to prison? Well, the answer is Paul's imprisonment he was always talking about Jesus and what Jesus had done. And many in prison, as well as the guards and others, were coming to faith because of that word of Paul. And when the people realized that Paul's word could bring people to faith, then even if they were poured out as a drink offering, they would be glad and rejoice. There are Christians, not so much in the United States, but in other parts of the world who are being slaughtered because of their faith in Jesus Christ. 
and because those who are killing them have no understanding of who God is. In fact, when I drive Uber, I kind of like to get into a conversation with folks about whether or not they believe in God. And when that happens, here's my technique that I find very helpful. I say, do you believe in God? And a lot of them will say yes. Then what's my next question? And this is one that you could use. What promise did your God give you? And a lot of times there's silence because they haven't thought of God as a promising God. They think of him as a creator or somebody who's maybe watching over them, but they can't give a promise. And see, that's the difference between the Christian faith and every other faith. We have a God who gives us promises. And he gave us promises because as the scripture says, he became humble to the point of view of the cross that we might be saved forever. I'm Tom Baker, and that was this issue of Law and Gospel. Tomorrow with Mark Smith, we're going to take a look at a hymn, Lord, Keep Us Steadfast in the Faith. Uh, join with us if you have the opportunity at 9.30. I'm Tom Baker. God bless you. Listen to Law and Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law and Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.